MailChimp presents. As a marketer, you're speaking to a vast audience. Some people need to be converted into customers, some need to be reunited with their carts, and others have just made a purchase. But when you fail to segment your audience and personalize your messaging, you can get what's called a customer. One big cluster of customers who may seem alike, but actually all have different behaviors. So how do you turn those customers back into customers? With Intuit MailChimp, you can use personalization tools that segment customers into groups, break them up into like-minded target audiences, and send them personalized marketing. Intuit MailChimp, the number one email marketing and automations brand. Based on competitor brands' publicly available data on worldwide numbers of customers in 2021 and 2022. Availability of features and functionality vary by plan, which are subject to change. We all have that elder, you know, like an auntie, a friend, a parent, who drops wisdom on us and changes the course of our lives. This season, I'm talking to 15 incredible people about important moments they went through and how the elders in their lives got them through it. I'm your host, Jenny Yang, and this is Going Through It. This week, Runda Girard. She just said, what, what is your goal? Like, what is it that you're trying to do? And I said, you know, I want to write a novel. I want to be a published writer. Like, I don't want to do anything else. This is what I want to do. And she said, that's great. What are you doing in an MFA program? It is so easy to tell someone that they're doing something wrong. And as my personal fave, Brene Brown, likes to say, those are the cheap seats. It is more rare and way tougher to give someone advice on how to do it better and offer the resources to make it happen. That's what makes today's show so special. If you need a sign to go off the beaten path so you can make your dreams come true, this conversation with Runda Girard is it. Runda is an award-winning writer, performer, and professor. Her most recent book, Love is an Ex-Country, is a hilarious, raw, and moving memoir about her life as a queer Muslim Arab-American. She wrote her first book at 25. I mean, what were you doing back then? When I was 25, my greatest personal achievement was finding my first apartment. But for Runda, doing things early wasn't totally new. Runda says she did everything young. She enrolled in college at 16, had her son at 18, and by age 22, she already had her master's in Middle Eastern studies. Oh, my God. So when she decided she wanted to write her first novel, she did what a lot of young, aspiring writers do, enrolled in an MFA program. Renda thought that graduate school was the best step to reach her goal, but something an elder told her, and did for her, completely changed the course of her life. In 2000, when I started my first MFA program, I chose to attend this particular MFA program because Leslie Marmon Silko, who is a native fiction writer, novelist, badass, was going to be teaching there just for a year. 
And I just knew that I had to learn with her and learn from her. You know, she is from the Pueblo tribe in New Mexico and writes extensively about her people. She published a lot of poems in the 70s and then decided to write a novel called Ceremony, which came out in, I think, 1979 and was a very, very early, if not the first book by a Native woman that was fiction that focused on Native people's experiences. It just did a lot in terms of textual experimentation that I had never seen before. And then she followed it up 10 years later with a book called Almanac of the Dead, which is so much better and grander and more massive than David Foster Wallace's Infinite Jest. You know, I feel like Almanac of the Dead to me is like if I see, if I ever see a hottie holding a book like that, I'm just like, oh my God. Come home with me immediately. <laughs> um, <laughs> Huge recommendation. I mean, it's a great way to decide if someone's a keeper. Right? And, and she's also just a very striking woman. Like, I used to look at pictures of her, you know, in her regalia. And she has this just, like, very powerful demeanor to her in all of her photos. And she was also a gun fanatic, which is not something I necessarily understood at the time. She wrote an essay called In the Combat Zone about how women of color um, need to be armed. And her existence in America goes against a lot of what our ideas of women from that generation are. And so I just related to her and I thought I want to be in the presence of this goddess. You know, if I'm going to be taught by anyone, it should be this goddess. <laughs> so I moved half an hour outside of Austin with my son, and I started this program, and she was incredible. So after she'd read a couple of my things, she asked me to come see her in her office, and I think I knew this wasn't going to be a normal office visit because... When she had asked me to come in, she had written me a little note and drawn a little flower on the note. And I thought, oh, what is this? This seems great. This seems cool. Yeah, very special. And I walk in and her office, you know, she's only there for a year, but it is decked out. She like went to the dollar store and bought, you know, all these amazing decorations. Ooh. And just put them up all over her office. So her office was just like full of weird like balloons and garlands and, you know, like signs. And just it was just everywhere. It was incredible. Right. And she just said, what what is your goal? Like, what is it that you're trying to do? And I said, you know, I want to write a novel. I want to be a published writer. Like, I don't want to do anything else. This is what I want to do. And she said, that's great. What are you doing in an MFA program? And I said, "I'm. that's what I'm doing. And she said, well, you actually, you need to quit. You need to quit this program. And it was wild. I was like, what are you talking about? No, like I'm in deferment for my student loans. I have a child. I don't want to get a job. And she said, I didn't say anything about getting a job. 
You just need to quit this MFA program, go move somewhere cheaply, very cheaply, you know, try not to pay more than $400 in rent and just write for two years. Just do that for two years and get as much money together as you can to be able to do that. And I said, well, I can't do that. Like I have a baby and she knew I had a child and she told me, you know, I also had a child young and I can relate to what you're going through and I understand that it can be hard. But MFA programs are parts of institutions and institutions don't care about you. So you need to be doing something that is actually going to move you forward. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to just give you part of what I'm getting paid here so that you can do that. When someone's a chair at a university, right, like they give you so much money, they fund you. And she gave me 10% pretty much of what they gave her for that year. I I, my jaw, you can't see it because you're listening right now, but my jaw is agape. It is, agape. I, am, I am gobsmacked. I've never been gobsmacked, but I imagine <laughs> that's what, that, what this, that's what this would be. So she gave you like 10% of her salary so that you could write. Yeah. And I mean, I was gobsmacked. I couldn't believe it. I was like, wait, what do you mean? And also, how can I depend on that? Like, that's kind of scary. Like, what if you decide in three months, oh, my God, like, I have this unexpected payment. Uh Uh-huh. And she said, no, what I'm going to do is I'm literally going to give you a check for each month. I'm going to trust you, and I'm going to give you a check for each month ahead of time, and you will be able to cash it. And my initial reaction, because my authority figure issues, (laughs) you know, I thought, well, what is she what is she saying? But also there was a part of me that thought, oh my gosh, she's right. So I think part of me recognized in her that she was a fellow elder sister or that she was a fellow person who was sitting on the margins, that she was someone who was not your typical authority figure. So what did you do next? And so I realized that 15 minutes away, there was a preschool that my son could go to for free. So that meant seven hours a day of child-free time that I could write. And I also found a trailer in that town that was for $300 a month, all utilities included. And so I moved. I had the checks she gave me and my child support, which was spotty but came through, food stamps, and I made it work. I made it work for two years. And Wow. I don't think I would have had the chance to do any of that and write my first novel if it wasn't for her advice and her literally like putting her money where her mouth was, right? And just really being like, no, I'm going to support you, but you have to step up and do the things. She said, like, my generosity doesn't work by itself. You have to have the courage to kind of step up and deliver. Amazing. So what was the book that you wrote? So the book that I ended up writing in that trailer is A Map of Home. And it's a first-person account of a young Palestinian-Egyptian-American girl who grows up in the U.S., in Egypt, in Palestine, in Kuwait, and moves to Texas um, as a 14-year-old. And it's a coming-of-age novel that very bluntly describes and celebrates 
her sexuality and her ownership of that sexuality. And it's a comic novel, so it's actually meant to be read out loud and meant to make you laugh. I love that. Now, I want to know, like, why was this book important for you to write? It was really important for me to write this book at that time because it was really important for me to read this book. So this is something that Toni Morrison said, right? If the book that you want to read doesn't exist, you have to write it. And in the writing of the book, um, 9-11 happened. You know, I saw so much hatred directed towards my people, so much disinformation, misinformation, unkindness, the war on terror, the war in Iraq, the war in Afghanistan. I just saw people, right, being assaulted and hurt um, and losing their lives over acts that they had not committed. And for me, as a young Muslim, Palestinian, you know, Egyptian, queer woman, I felt like it was important that my story and the stories of people like me be out there. I felt that my story was worthy of being elevated into art. I don't see a difference between Proust and um, other writers who've written their life stories and made them into art um, and my own first novel. So I feel that Leslie helped move the world forward a little bit during this particular time. And I think she understood that that's what was happening. She's very politically savvy. She's a leftist. And I think that she understood that books like this were very few and far between. And she wanted to support having a voice like that be out there. And so when I finished my novel, our agreement was I would send it to her and she would read it. I sent her my novel. She read it. She loved it. And she called her agency and had a junior agent contact me and take me on as a client. And I was 25. I had only published one story online. And writers spend so much time querying and finding agents. And the fact that she helped me skip that step was monumental because, I mean, the agent took a couple of years to sell the book because the book was a hard sell in some ways. There weren't a lot of books out there about Palestinian, Egyptian, queer, young women. (laughs) (laughs) And it was a miracle for me to be able to work with someone in an established agency in New York who, like, understood what I was trying to do and had spoken to Leslie and heard Leslie speak so highly of my work. I think that the time she put in, her generosity, the advice she gave, completely changed the course of my life and my son's life. It's so brilliant what she did for you because it wasn't just, she didn't just say that to you. You know what I mean? She didn't just say, hey, you know what, Runda, you need to just look at unconventional ways of funding your writing. (laughs) Screw this MFA program. She was your actual teacher. The person you were trying to pay to teach you, right, to help you. And she was telling you, you don't need my services. Not in this way. In fact, I am going to put my money where my mouth is because I believe in you that much. Yeah. That blows my mind. That's like, to me, let me just say this. When I hear the story, 
I am blown away by how hard of an intervention this is. Like, this isn't just advice. Like, this is like straight up like an intervention. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, the audacity yes. of Leslie, Professor Leslie, you know what I mean? Like, who does that? Like, I'm about to change Absolutely. this person's life. Like, that is so powerful to me. Yeah. I, honestly, I feel like a big part of it was also that she wasn't a traditional professor. Yeah. She was a visiting professor. So she took her own advice and stayed out of institutions yeah. and systems. And that was a big part of just seeing how she operated taught me how to operate later as a professor myself. You know, as an educator, as a writer, I think of my students, I think, in a way that is not maybe traditionally how a professor should think about her students. I think of them as writers first and foremost and you know hope that they have the courage to step into that role it also changed the way that i think about institutions and what they can provide and what they limit it has also showed me the ways that i can carve my own path like we were saying and it has also taught me how to receive generosity. Friendship and relationships are definitely give and take. And as someone who was socialized, right, as a woman socialized to give a lot, and as a mother, right, to just continuously give, Leslie taught me that it's also important to receive mm -hmm. and to take and to accept, right? So to be open to that and to let other people help you. Because I think being closed off from that limits you in so many ways. still a little gobsmacked by that story. It was the first time I've ever used the word gobsmacked in a sentence, but I used it for Runda. It felt right, you know? Leslie paid it forward to Runda all those years ago, not only financially, but also by helping to shape her as a mentor and educator herself. And it sounds like Runda is doing the same with her students. Like, like damn, if any of Runda's students are listening, do you know how lucky you are to have her as a teacher? One of my first mentors who really invested in me was my teacher, Mr. Smith, Jerry Smith. He taught me trigonometry and was my high school student council advisor. I was a big student council nerd. I went to a very good public high school and got straight A's, but it was Mr. Smith who encouraged my talents beyond academics. He asked me to write copy for a school's marketing brochure, which was a huge vote of confidence in my writing. He also recommended me to represent our school in leadership training programs. Each of those experiences gave me a stronger sense of purpose and the confidence to lead others, things that I've used to succeed in every step of my career. Runda's story reminds me that if we really believe in something or someone, we must invest in them. Our support could be as small as asking a kid to write a marketing brochure, or as big as giving up a part of a paycheck. And it's easy to say we think something's cool, like on social media, but to actually invest in storytellers like Runda because we believe in uplifting marginalized voices, that's where it counts. 
Going Through It is an original podcast created in partnership with MailChimp and Pineapple Street Studios. Executive producers for Going Through It are Jayanne Berry, Jenna Weiss-Berman, and Max Linsky. Our managing producer is Agarenish Ashagre. This season is produced by the all-star team of Sophia Steiner-Evoy, Emerald O'Brien, and Yinka Rickford-Anguin. And we're edited by the irreplaceable Aaron Edwards. We're engineered to perfection or very close to it by Davey Sumner. Our theme music was produced by Raj Makija. Dawood Anthony also produced original music for this season with additional tunes from Epidemic Sound and Blue Dot Sessions. Legal services for Pineapple Street by Bianca Grimshaw at Granderson Des Rochers. Extra special thanks to Himia Freeman for his support on this production. And of course, the biggest thanks to my own elders for everything and for being the inspiration behind the show. Mom, Dad, Margaret Cho, Tracy Kato Kiriyama, Keiko Agena, Tim Sams, Gina Lu Gong, Quan Fung, Michelle Ko, and so many more. And thanks in general to my loud ass partner, Corey Higgs, for staying quiet in the house for me. And thank you for listening.